Today is Wednesday, August the 16th, 2023. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key, and do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how big tech companies are using your personal data? We have been bringing computer industry news, hardware and software reviews, guest interviews, and news of user group meetings for the past 40 years. The Personal Computer Show is the three-time winner of the prestigious National Computer Press Award. The Personal Computer Show had for many years been a call-in talk show. The pandemic-causing studio lockdown has altered our format. The listener call-in format enabled us to know what technology issues were on the mind of the listeners. Our only advocacies are consumerism and the First Amendment. I welcome you, the listeners, to provide feedback as to what you want to hear. Address your suggestions to hank at pcradioshow.org. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network. That's prn.live. That's prn.live. Streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is also available on prn.live on the Internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. New York City's Wi-Fi kiosk deployment is a mess. In 2014, New York City officials decided to replace the city's dated payphones with information kiosks, providing free public Wi-Fi, phone calls, device charging, and a tablet for access to city services, maps, and directions. The kiosks were to be funded by context-aware ads based on a variety of data collected from kiosk users and New York City residents just passing by. The project has failed to meet its deployment goals. Within a few years, reports emerged that the company hired to deploy the kiosk at City Bridge had only deployed 1,900 of an originally promised 7,000 kiosks, and the kiosks they had deployed were being used to watch porn. The program has also long been criticized for overcollecting user data and being completely non-transparent about what data was being collected or who access was sold to. By 2020, City Bridge still owed the city $75 million. In 2021, an audit by New York State Controller found Link NYC failed completely to meet its deployment goals, failed to adequately maintain existing kiosks, failed to turn on many already deployed kiosks, and had fallen well short of the projected ad revenues. It's now 2023, and the ACLU of New York says that the lion's share of the dodgy privacy-violating tracking undertaken by the kiosk system still hasn't been meaningfully addressed. And the city and its partners still refuse to provide full transparency on what's being collected from passing city residents, whether they use the kiosk or not. Beyond issues with the privacy policy, there is still a lot we don't know about what information Link NYC kiosks are sucking up. We also don't know who has access to that information, how City Bridge is utilizing other third-party data to target people, and what's being done with that treasure trove of personal data. The ACLU suggests that one alternative to this privacy-invading stopgap 
effort is for the city to actually deliver affordable fiber broadband to all city residents so they don't need to huddle in the street in the first place. We need a publicly funded and controlled municipal broadband program that ensures every New Yorker, regardless of who they are or how much money they have, can enjoy high-speed, reliable internet access. This program must put our privacy rights front and center so they aren't traded away to the highest bidder. If you recall, New York City Mayor Eric Adams dismantled the city's already underway plan to build a citywide open access fiber network. That network would have boosted city broadband competition and driven down broadband access costs for all city residents. But it was unceremoniously dismantled, much to the surprise of folks that had been working on it for years. The Adams administration insisted that the privacy-invasive undercook kiosk system was good enough, likely because a city-owned municipal network would understandably upset regional monopolies, duopolies, and Verizon and regional cable giant Charter Communications, which is Spectrum. As a substitute, the Adams administration also embraced a program dubbed Big Apple Connect. Under Big Apple Connect, the city decided to pay Charter, that's it, we pay Charter, $30 million a year for three years to give free broadband to around 400,000 people living in public housing around the city. Here's the thing, though. This program will cost the city $90 million to temporarily fix a problem caused by the company it's partnering with. That money would be thrown at a local monopoly directly responsible for high prices through its attacks on competition to temporarily lower costs. And the program only runs three years, after which those limited participants are out of luck and prices revert to their normal high. In contrast, New York City's original master plan called for spending $156 million to build an open access fiber network that all local ISPs could compete for business over. The resulting competition would have lowered broadband access costs for everyone in range. That $90 million being thrown at Charter could have gone a long way toward getting that network off the ground and inspiring other cities. There's a reason cities everywhere are building their own broadband networks, whether they're municipal, cooperatives, or via the city-owned utility. It's because data routinely show that Treating broadband as an essential utility not only result in better, faster, and cheaper broadband, but also locally owned networks are more easily to hold accountable for privacy and other competitive shenanigans. This data-backed argument that broadband should probably be a publicly owned utility understandably doesn't make regional predatory telecom monopolies or the endless federal, state, and local politicians that, well, coddle them particularly happy at all. Zoom, the video conferencing application that we are most familiar with, has a term of service. And what does this mean for the future of web privacy? It's no secret that Silicon Valley's business model revolves around harvesting a treasure trove amount of consumer data and selling it off to the highest bidder. Usually, it's our own government that's buying it. If you use the internet, you are the product. This is surveillance 
Capitalism 101. But after Zoom's big term of service debacle earlier this week, there are some signs that surveillance capitalism may be shape-shifting into some terrible new beast, thanks largely to AI, that's artificial intelligence. In case you missed it, Zoom has been under pressure for a change it recently made to its terms of service. That change actually happened back in March of this year, but people didn't notice it until this week, when a blogger pointed out the policy shift in a post that went viral on Hacker News. The change, which came at the height of AI's hype frenzy, gave Zoom an exclusive right to use user data to train future AI modules. More specifically, Zoom claims a right to a perpetual worldwide non-exclusive, royalty-free, sub-licensable, and transferable license to use as data, which it was interpreted, included the contents of video conferencing calls and user messages. Suffice it to say, the backlash was swift, and its users were openly negative on the internet. Since the initial storm clouds have passed, Zoom has promised that it isn't, in fact, using video conferencing data to train AI, and has even updated its term of service, again, of course, to make this explicitly clear. Well, let's hope it's clear the way we understand it should be. But whether Zoom is harvesting your data or not, this week's controversy clearly indicates an alarming new trend in which companies are now using all the data they've collected to train artificial intelligence products. They're then turning around and selling those AI services back to the very same users whose data helped build the products in the first place, thus creating an endless self-propagating loop. It makes sense that companies are doing this since any fleeting mention of the term AI now send investors and shareholders into a tizzy. Still, the biggest offenders here are companies that already own vast swaths of the world's information making it particularly creepy and legally weird situation. Google, for instance, recently made it known that it's been scraping the web to train its new AI algorithms. Big AI vendors like OpenAI and MidJourney, meanwhile, have also vacuumed up most of the internet in an effort to amass enough data to support their platforms. Helpfully, the Harvard Business Review just published a how-to guide for companies who want to transform their data troves into new AI algorithm juice. So I'm sure we can expect even more offenders in the future. Just how worried should we be about this obnoxious brew of digital privacy violation and automation? Catherine Trent da Costa, a director of policy and advocacy at the Electronic Frontier Foundation and a former Gizmodo employee, doesn't necessarily think that Generative AI is accelerating surveillance capitalism. That said, it's not decelerating it either. If surveillance capitalism can be more intrusive, what more can Google possibly have access to? AI is just giving companies like Google one more way to monetize and utilize all the data they've amassed. The problems with AI have nothing to do with AI, Tranda Costa said. The real problem is the regulatory vacuum around these new technologies, which allows companies to wield them in a blindly profit-driven, obviously unethical way. And if we had a privacy law, 
we wouldn't have to worry about AI. If we had labor protections, we would not have to worry about AI. Or AI is a pattern recognition machine. So it's not the specifics of the technology that is the problem. It is how it is used and what is fed into it. Deep fakes and political ads, obviously, is a problem. The Federal Election Commission can't decide whether AI-generated content in political advertising is a problem or not. A petition sent to the agency by the advocacy group Public Citizen has asked it to consider regulating deep fake media in political ads. This week, the Federal Election Commission decided to advance the group's petition, opening up the potential rulemaking to a public comment period. In June, the FEC deadlocked on a similar petition from Public Citizen with some regulators expressing skepticism that they had the authority to regulate AI ads, the Associated Press had reported. The advocacy group was then forced to come back with a new petition that laid out to the federal agency why it did, in fact, have the jurisdiction to do so. In other words, they don't know if they had the petition to do it or not, but they went back and thought about it, and they said, yeah, they do. Are you kidding me? Last week, a small consortium of big players in the AI space, namely OpenAI, Anthropic, Google, and Microsoft, launched a Frontier Model Forum, an industry body designed to guide the AI boom while also offering up watered-down regulatory suggestions to governments. The forum, which says it wants to advance AI safety research to promote responsible development of frontier models and minimize potential risk, is based upon a weak regulatory vision promulgated by OpenAI itself, the so-called frontier AI model, which was outlined in a recently published study, focuses on AI safety issues and make some mild suggestions for how government can mitigate the potential impact of automated programs that could exhibit dangerous capabilities. Given how well Silicon Valley's self-regulation model has worked for us so far, you certainly hope that our designated lawmakers would wake up and override this self-serving, profit-driven legal roadmap. You can compare the U.S. predictable acquiescence to corporate power to what's happening across the pond, where Britain is in the process of prepping for a global summit on AI that it will be hosting. The summit also follows on the fast-paced development of the European Union's AI Act, a proposed regulatory framework that carves out modest guardrails for commercial artificial intelligence systems. Get them while you can. Intel begins purging nooks from inventory. For those who tinker, Intel Nook kits offer the best in customization potential. Each kit includes the processor, motherboard, and chassis, but allows you to add your choice of memory, storage, and peripherals to create the ideal solution for any situation. The Intel Nook is available assembled. Intel recently left the Nook business, but today, Asus and Intel revealed that they had reached a preliminary agreement that gives ASUS a non-exclusive license to produce Intel Nook designs and develop next-generation Nooks. With its vast engineering resources, ASUS will clearly be able to support the rather diverse product line that Nook has become. 
Intel has begun purging its next unit of computing, that's NUC, lineup, issuing a slew of product discontinuation notices just weeks after abandoning its mini-PC division and handing the reins to ASUS. As of August the 18th, Intel's Nook 12 Enthusiast Kits X15 and P14E reference laptops, yes, Intel also made notebooks, will officially be discontinued. With the last call for interested parties to get their hands of remaining stock being September 8th. Intel's Nook 12 Enthusiast Kit was particularly notable as it served as a showcase for the chipmaker's ARC A770M GPU. This particular Nook code, named Serpent Canyon, was discontinued less than a year after hitting the shelves in September of 2022. Based on the performance we saw from the chipmaker's desktop chips, we can't say we're all that surprised. From the product change notifications, it's not exactly clear how long Intel will continue providing support for these products. This responsibility may actually end up falling on the SUS, which has reportedly agreed to manufacture, sell, and support 10th to 13th generation Nook hardware. However, for the time being, Intel tells us that existing support processes continue to apply and that when this changes, Intel will notify its customers and distributors. The latest bout of product discontinuations comes just weeks after the chipmaker killed off its PC division as part of a widely publicized cost-saving measure intended to curb Intel's annual spending to the tune of $8 billion to $10 billion a year by 2025. We expect these discontinuations to be the first of many to come over the next few weeks as the chipmaker clears inventories. As has been previously reported, the last Nook hardware is expected to leave Intel's warehouse by September the 30th. The good news for fans of Intel's quirky little and sometimes not so little PCs is you can expect to see these parts on warehouse shelves and at your local e-tailer for a while longer, potentially at a steep discount if the fire sale on Intel's Optane solid-state drives following their cancellation last summer is anything to go by. Intel, like some other chip giants, has faced financial headwinds over the past several quarters as demand for PC hardware has plummeted. Intel's fortunes appear to be improving with the x86 Titan posting a profit of $1.5 billion in the second quarter, up from $2.8 billion loss the prior quarter. Ironically, much of this recovery was attributed to better-than-expected PC demand for desktops. However, this trend wasn't enough to save the Nook division from the CEO's axe. After all, Intel still needs to cut $3 billion from its annual spending this year, and the Nook division doesn't exactly have the best sales record. Last year, we learned the x86 giant only shipped 10 million Nook units over a decade, a fact that earned the division a place on Intel's card-costing bingo card. Those still mourning the end of the Nook family should find solace in the fact that the Nook concept will live on under ASUS stewardship. Last week, the manufacturer's Tinkerboard division showed off a new single-board computer available 
and the nook form factor. Cable and telecom companies are pushing for change to FCC broadband pricing labels. A Federal Communications Commission order for cable and telecom internet service providers to show nutrition label style disclosures on broadband pricing as they are too onerous and may actually confuse consumers, according to the NCTA, the Internet and Television Association. The NCTA, which represents the cable players, were joined by fellow cable group, the ACA, Connects, and Wireless Trade Group, CTIA, are pushing back against the FCC order, which is supposed to offer consumers an easily viewable look at their expected all-in pricing for Internet. The NCTA itself sent a letter to the FCC on Friday calling for the agency to ease off on some of the restrictions. This followed a similar letter sent by the ACA last month. The pushback underscores the contentious nature of these nutrition labels. The labels were mandated by Congress, but the FCC created the rules and approved the order late last year. The Internet service providers have argued that they represent an onerous burden on their business. The rule was supposed to have already gone into effect. The labels were designed to give consumers a clearer sense of what they would pay for Internet service. What you pay for Internet has long been a murky question given the different types of promotions available, some based on your credit score and the different local and federal fees charged it was also supposed to expose fine print items like data caps, speed, and other hidden charges. Broadband providers are supposed to prominently display the labels online and allow third-party sites to easily compile the info. But the ISP industry has raised issues with the requirements to list out every single federal, state, and local government fee, arguing that this would require the creation of multiple labels. This new requirement would add unnecessary complexity and burdens to the label for consumers and providers and could result in some providers having to create many labels for any given plan. The NCTA said in its letter, these unnecessary burdens would be felt by both small and large providers. A second part of the order requires the broadband provider to document when a customer is directed to a label when they work with an alternative channels, such as in a store or over the phone. Again, the NCTA said such documentation would be a burden on the companies. The trade groups suggest that the FCC instead allow providers to develop appropriate business practices to promote distribution of the label through alternative sales channels and retaining the documentation of these practices for two years. Well, I want to put my two cents in on this. The consumer does not necessarily want to know every single item that is part of the charge for internet service. What they want to know is what is the final total they have to pay and not commit to a service not knowing what the final bill looks like. I think in all fairness to the consumer, if you can provide them, this is what you will pay and nothing more instead of saying I am contracting for a service and then when the bill comes, it's 10, 15, 20% higher and there's no explanation for it because in many of these hidden charges, the fees 
are not necessarily regulatory fees. They're company fees. There has been some serious concern in recent years over the declining number of camera sales. Clearly, a significant factor has been the rise in dominance of camera phones. However, promising statistics between May 2022 and May 2023 shows an 11% increase in digital cameras export from Japan. A lot of that increase in activity attributed to interchangeable lens cameras. Since the start of 2023, there has been a gradual increase in the shipment of digital cameras from just 260,000 units shipped in January compared to 550,000 units in May of this year, representing a 117% increase. Interchangeable lens cameras, that's DSLs and mirrorless cameras, are the main reason for the increase, which is no surprise. Results from CIPA, which is the Camera and Imaging Product Association, show a rise in integrated lens camera, those with lens built in, in the last two months. But it is only keeping pace with last year's pre-summer rise and is still behind 2021. With Sony releasing not one, but two V-logging focus cameras, the ZV-E1 and the ZV-1-2, within the space of a few months, plus Canon's first V-logging-centric camera, the PowerShot V10 in early May, we are seeing a shift to people buying a dedicated camera for V-logging and filmmaking rather than just relying on cell phones. It should be pointed out that CIPA is a Japanese trade association, so the figures give a pretty good idea of what's going on. Perhaps the reason for the steady increase in camera shipment is partly due to the fact that people have more need for them now. During 2021 and 2022, many camera brands were still struggling with the repercussions of the pandemic. There was a worldwide parts shortage leading to delays for many new camera releases. Even if digital camera shipments continue to increase throughout 2023, based on previous year's results, we can expect that there'll be a drop in shipments as November and December approach. While people may have spare cash to spend on new camera equipment through spring and summer, the Christmas sales period is often slow for actual camera sales, while more affordable kit camera accessories generally sell better. These stats are still a long way behind the number of cameras being shipped over a decade ago. In 2010, for example, 121 million units were sold, according to LensVid, but the uptick, especially in the quality products, still hopes at the end of a period of uncertainty for many camera manufacturers. Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell. This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. This is where we spend a few minutes talking about computers, the workplace, and sometimes the information technology professionals. And you actually fit into this this week. And I want to talk about the downsides of working in IT. Next week, we'll talk about the upsides. But this is where I want to give you a little bit more information in regards to what the experience is like. I mean, we think of the world of information technology as a fascinating realm where pixels and code dance together. They create wonders. They solve all kinds of problems. But they are like roses 
and there are thorns. Yes, working in information technology has its fair share of downsides. Again, this week we'll talk downsides. Next week, upsides. But I want you to I want you to picture what the information technology professional goes through. You're you're sitting at your desk, you're surrounded by a tangle of cables that resemble spaghetti. And the clock is relentlessly ticking away. You have a thousand tasks on your to-do list, and pressure is mounting. This is the world of deadlines. This is the world of endless troubleshooting. In this jungle, time isn't going to wait for you. It waits for no one, and the demands never cease. And that starts off my first one, a matter of burnout. In the realm of IT, burnout is like burnt toast at breakfast. It leaves that bitter taste in your mouth. There is a constant pressure to perform. There are long hours spent in front of the screens, and that includes at 3 o'clock in the morning when you're fast asleep, being awakened because something went wrong. There is a never-ending stream of technical challenges that are going to just plague you. They're going to drain even the most energetic. Burnout lurks at every corner. It's waiting to snatch away passion and leaving the IT professional feeling like an empty shell. There's also constant learning and adapting and with that, struggling. Imagine you're, you're trapped in a maze where the walls are made of ever-changing technology and your path is constantly being adjusted and changed. In IT, learning is a continuous journey where you must constantly adapt. You must acquire new skills. And these include learning new protocols for cybersecurity. You need to learn various bits and pieces of programming languages. You may need to learn a number of different things that you never expected. The knowledge required is vast and it's ever-evolving IT is completely different than it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. That's how long I've been in IT. This is a race against time, and the finish line, you'll never achieve it. It's always moving. And then there's isolation. Just like you might find yourself marooned on an isolated island surrounded by your machines and codes. The work is exceedingly solitary. It's great if you're an introvert. If you have any inclination towards speaking to people, it's going to be a struggle. There are going to be hours spent tinkering away in your own virtual universe. Social interaction actually becomes a very rare commodity. And camaraderie that is found in other professions may actually be quite distant. You're also swimming against the current. You're swimming in a whirlpool of troubleshooting. Every day brings new challenges. And each of these challenges is going to throw you for a loop. It's going to be more perplexing than anything you've dealt with. I've been in the industry for 30 years, over 30 years. And there are times where problems come up and I struggle 
I struggle to solve them. I will dive deep into the abyss of code. I will search for an elusive bug. I will forever be dragged deeper into that vortex. Just like the maze that I mentioned a moment ago. See, all of this. It's a battle against time and logic. And frustration is going to occur. There will be moments in time... When you just, what am I doing here today? Why am I doing this? And your determination, no matter how determined you are, you know that there's a chance you might not make it through this particular problem. There's plenty more problems to deal with, though. So through all of this, you're walking a high wire. And one of those high wires is security. And there's a tightrope that IT professionals must conquer. They must walk across it with grace and precision because we have to protect sensitive data on one side, but we also have people on the other side where they want access to that data. So you have to balance this carefully. And the weight of all of this weighs very heavily on your shoulders. Because you have to guard against unseen dangers while still allowing your company to move forward. Now, Albert Einstein once said, In the middle of difficulty lies opportunity. And in IT, opportunity blooms amongst the thorns, waiting for the brave enough to seize it. So next week, I am going to talk about the upsides. But I want you to understand It may be fun at times, it may be wonderful at times, but it may be very difficult. It may be a journey that some people just aren't up for. I've actually enjoyed my time. Even though I've had all of these problems, visit me at one point in time or another. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. Workplace Equality for All, a fascinating research by NYU's Michael North and Stanford's Ashley Martin, which found that workers who openly oppose racism and sexism were still prejudiced against older workers. Market research firm Statista took a look at the median age of employees at the top tech companies in the United States, ranging from Apple to Google to Facebook. While companies like AOL skewed a bit younger, and many employees at HP are likely pushing 40 or older, most employees in the tech world are in their late 20s. The average age information technology manager age is 40 years old. To learn how pervasive this age discrimination is, Newmark, Byrne, and Button conducted a correspondence study a study in which they created job applicant profiles that they sent in response to advertisements for positions. They then measured the number of callbacks each age group of otherwise identical applicants received for a subsequent interview. They found that across all the applications, the callback rate for interviews was uniformly lower for older applicants, a finding that they described as consistent with age discrimination in hiring. In the study reported, the sample of more than 40,000 job applicant profiles offers statistical evidence that there is age discrimination in hiring. 
discrimination against both women and men. Second, older applicants, those 64 to 66 years of age, experience much more age discrimination than middle-aged applicants from 49 to 51. Third, women, especially older women, but even those of middle age, experience more age discrimination in hiring than men do. The authors suggest that it may be because appearance matters. According to multiple sources, ageism is on the rise. A report from the World Health Organization found that one in two people worldwide experience ageism, and complaints of age discrimination are increasing. The COVID-19 pandemic has also exposed ageism and age discrimination in society. In a workplace equality survey, 77% of respondents reported an increase in ageism in the past year. The United Nations is urging countries to combat ageism through evidence-based strategies, educational activities, and intergenerational activities. Therefore, it can be concluded that ageism is indeed on the rise. And by the way, the other 50% who are practicing ageism against older people, if they live long enough, they'll be on the other side of the fence and they will end up being the subject. And one thing I've learned that with age, all successful organizations employ young and old. The young gets their wisdom from the older people, and the older people gets the energy from the younger people. NASA spacecraft will reunite with Earth after 17 years of studying the Sun. Stereo-A will pass between Earth and the Sun for its first flyby since the launch in 2006 collaborating with other missions to reveal new insights about our star. For the past 17 years, a lone spacecraft has been following Earth's tracks in its orbits around the Sun and capturing unprecedented views of our host star. The acronym for Solar Terrestrial Relations Observatory is STEREO. Now STEREO-A has finally caught up with its home planet, lapping us in our cosmic trail and meeting the Earth for a brief rendezvous. On Saturday, NASA's Stereo Space A spacecraft is scheduled for its first Earth flyby since its launch on October 25, 2006, the space agency revealed. The flyby is not only a chance for the spacecraft to reunite with Earth, but also provides a rare opportunity for Stereo and let's call it just stereo because there's a reason why uh, we call it stereo-A, to collaborate with other NASA missions to view the sun in new and exciting ways. The stereo mission actually started off with twin spacecrafts, the leading stereo-A for ahead and stereo-B, which lagged behind. The two spacecrafts provided the first stereoscopic or multiple perspective view of the sun. At some point, the spacecraft even achieved a 180 degree separation from each other in their orbits, giving us a simultaneous view of the star as a complete sphere for the first time. Prior to that, we were tethered to the sun-earth line. We only saw one side of the sun at a time. NASA said in a statement, Stereo broke that tether and gave us a view of the sun 
as a three-dimensional object. In 2014, Stereo B, which the one that lagged behind, sadly went silent after a planned reset, and Stereo A was forced to go solo. During its upcoming flyby, however, this Stereo A, which we were just now just called Stereo, will once again work as part of the team. The spacecraft will synthesize its view with a solar and heliospheric observatory, otherwise with the acronym SOHO, S-O-H-O. A joint mission between NASA and the European Space Agency, as well as NASA's Solar Dynamic Observatory, SDO. The collaboration between the solar missions will allow for a multi-perspective view of the sun or stereoscopic vision. It's similar to how our brains compare images from each eye and use differences between those images to differentiate between closer and further objects, creating depth perception. The data gathered by the three missions will allow scientists to gather three-dimensional information that would otherwise be lost in two-dimensional images of the sun. The team of scientists behind the stereo missions are also hoping to test a theory about corona loops, carved arcs of the magnetic field that pops up through the visible surface of the sun. There is a recent idea that corona loops might just be optical illusions. Terry Kusira, stereo project scientist at NASA's Goddard of Space Flight Center, said in a statement, If you look at them from multiple points of view, the answer should become more apparent. During the months before and after Saturday's flyby, stereo will also be hit by the plumes of solar material that are directed towards Earth and will measure those corona mass ejections, CMESs, as the solar material travels from the sun towards the Earth. It will hit stereo A, as well as SOHO and SDO. Boy, that's a lot of acronym. Prior to this flight, coronal mass ejections have only been felt by one spacecraft at a time. It's like the parable about the blind men and the elephant. The one who feels the leg says, it's like a tree trunk. And the one who feels the tail says, it's like a snake. Tony Galvin, a professor at the University of New Hampshire and principal investigator for one of the stereo instruments said in the statement, that's what we've been stuck with right now with CMEs because we typically only have one or two spacecraft right next to each other measuring it. The last time the stereo spacecraft was close to Earth in 2006, the sun was in its solar minimum or the point during its 11-year cycle with low activity. The sun is now approaching its solar maximum and the star has been quite lively as of late. Earlier this week, two massive solar flares erupted from the sun and disrupted the radio signals in the United States. In this phase of the solar cycle, stereo is going to experience a fundamentally different sun. There is so much knowledge to be gained from that. Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston. Marty Winston joins me now. Marty, what's on your mind? I, uh, you, you and I have been around tech and a lot of tech products for more than a few weeks. Yeah, a, a few years. We'll just say a few years. Yes. 
half a century. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, everybody who presents those products to us is happy to give us the specifications. And, you know, they'll weasel worded sometimes. Good for up to 300 hours if you never turn it on. Yeah, we get that. (laughs) (laughs) I've never experienced. Oh, yeah, I have. I have experienced that a lot. Oh, tons. Way too much. Yes, go on. And, you know, they'll give us specs. They'll give us feeds and speeds. They'll give us assets. They'll give us attributes. They'll tell us what it was built from, how it was designed, the life story of a piece, a chunk of something, you know? Yeah, yeah. And when you're all done, none of it tells you why you want it. Uh-huh. Yeah. The user case is being shortchanged in tech. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I would agree with that. Yes. So what do we do? Well, I, of course, have a prescription for the industry. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'd like to present them with the challenge of answering two questions, both extremely deceptively short. Yeah. And the first question is, who cares? <laughs> yeah, you know, and you you've just addressed one of the things that uh, so so Apple for you know they started off with a smartphone and everybody was clamoring for them, but right now there's a lot of people who are. I mean, Keith, Keith has been he he's still sitting on the iPhone 10, which <laughs> you know for somebody who's yeah. a fanboy as much as he is. That that kind of amazes me, but he doesn't care for any of the new features. Well, maybe he's disappointed that uh, Apple isn't making the phones get skinny fast enough. Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, you can't get much skinnier in the phone realm than I mean. Yes, we we can shave off you, you know, like what? It's not even a mill. What are we well, talking have, about? Have you been watching Star Trek Discovery? It could just be a, a projection. <laughs> sure, a little projection. Yes, I, yes, yes, exactly. But you're right. A lot of the features these days on any of the smartphone lines, who cares? Yeah, who cares? Right. Yeah. yeah okay. Also, who needs a very specific answer? I've I've tried this with marketing guys a lot. I said, well, who cares? He said, well, people who want this care. I said, well, who wants this? He said, well, people who buy it. Well, why are they buying it? Because they want it. Why do they want it? Because they care. And who cares? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it well, gets a little cyclical there, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, okay. So, you know, who, you really need to answer that. Yeah. Tell yeah. me who your user is and why yes. it makes his life yes. better. Because the second question deceptively short and even harder to answer why bother and again I, I, you know I, I see a parallel I, I, I mean again with Keith he's talking about why bother going up to you know the the latest and greatest iPhone because uh, he doesn't have any drivers to go to that next level and we see that's with a lot of technology But technology has other things happening, too. For example, you always have the option of not doing anything. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Why bother doing something? Why bother paying for tech? You know, if if you have a box of matches, do you need a lighter? If you have. Well, I do, but I'm a pyromaniac. (laughs) Just truth be told. I mean, Fourth of July, if if you if you had been around in Fourth of July, you would have been like, hey, Ben, we got to we got to sit down. We got to talk because you're out of hand. (laughs) You're out of control. Well, yeah, if if we really want to talk about out of control for this audience, we talk about hoarders. Okay. yes. 
But this 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 is really a message to the marketing forces and the CEOs behind the products yeah, that they keep yeah. wanting us to cover. Yeah. And, you know, by the way, guys, those two short, simple questions are also the basis of a good journalist decision on whether or not to cover you. Who cares? Very true. Very Why true. Yeah. yeah. So this this is is my lecture to the industry. The user, the usage case. Yes. That's the only reason to build it. It's the only reason to sell it. And it's the thing you should be talking to when you make a case for it. So, you know, give me a reason to buy it. I, I'm wondering, have they stopped have they stopped teaching that in business classes? They never did. Oh, I, I in advertising I recall in in one of in my advertising, it, the closest they got was to talk about feature versus benefit. Products own the features, users own the benefits. And five percent of the community is about all who ever got what that difference was. I'm I'm wondering though. I'm sitting here. I, I'm I'm thinking that we did talk about it in one of my one of my classes about you know a, a matter of we have to we have to evaluate whether or not we're going to move forward with a project. We have to provide justification. Yeah. We have to we have to say why people are going to want this and how many so you can exactly. forecast. Exactly. Yes. Yes, and, and but but, but was you that have to know better than to exaggerate or to fudge it? Was 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 that not in college? Was that maybe just at one of the businesses I've worked at over the many years? No, mm. maybe it was a good lunch somewhere. I mean, it could have been, yeah, yeah. But but okay, so uh, so who cares and why bother? Those are those are those are two very very valid questions that people should be thinking about on both sides of the equation. I think. Yes, and users, if you're buying just for the specs, really? Can you see all the pixels that that phone can shoot for its <laughs> photos? Yeah, probably not. <laughs> all right, this is Benjamin Rockwell. That's Marty Winston. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin, and thank you, Marty. Public service announcements. Computer Club meetings in the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Tri-State region. Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. Tech Ed Connect, Thursday, September the 7th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom, and their website is wpcug.org. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group meets Friday, September the 8th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, and their website is limac.org. The King's Byte Computer Club meets Tuesday, September the 12th at 7 p.m., and they meet at the Park Plaza Restaurant located at 220 Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn. For more information, call 347-278-7320. The New York Amateur Computer Club meets Thursday, September the 14th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom, and the website is nyacc.org. The Brookdale Computer Users Group meets Thursday, September the 28th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom, and the website is bcug.com. 
Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on PRN, live streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email addressed to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy till we meet again, same time, same station, next week.